This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today, a proposed amendment in Arkansas to remove sales tax for period products. You know, one thing we've said is that people have periods on both sides of the aisle, you know, in both political areas. Um, it's something that we all experience, and I do think that this isn't really a political issue. Plus, considering what the Ozarks have been, are, and might become. Traditions are absolutely very conservative in that they endure over time, but they are equally quite dynamic in that we are constantly um, creating new traditions every day. And Bonnie Montgomery has country and roots music in her soul, but she's long loved other music too. So the first opera I saw live was at ASU, and it was just scenes. But oh my God, I just, wow. First the news from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Annie Leibovitz at Work. This exhibition includes the photographer's iconic pictures for Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Vogue, as well as new portraits made just for Crystal Bridges. Open until January 29th. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Carmelita's Modern Mexican Cuisine is located at 7022 West Sunset Avenue in Springdale. Serving authentic Northern Mexican and Southern Californian-style lunch from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. and Modern Mexican dinner 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Friday. More information at carmelitasnwa.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead on today's show, an examination of Ozark culture an honors college seminar with the University of Arkansas called, well, Ozark Culture. Plus, how that Ozark's culture inspired the music of Bonnie Montgomery. We hear some music from her latest release, River. That's in our second half hour. First today, Texas, Louisiana, and Florida all have something that Arkansans are looking for tax-free period products. A title for a ballot measure has been approved by the Arkansas Attorney General that looks to remove sales and use tax from products like tampons and pads. Matthew brings us this story. In the atrium of the Leffler Law Center on the University of Arkansas campus sits a table with a black tote on top of it. A flyer taped to the tote reads, Feminine Hygiene Should Be Free. Maggie Osborne is a second-year law student volunteering at the table this afternoon. We are taking the actual tampons and we're donating them to the local women's shelter, and then we're taking the receipts and mailing them to the Capitol in hopes of getting a refund for the tax difference. And it's more symbolic because it wouldn't be a lot of money, but we're just hoping, because in Texas, they were able to repeal the tampon luxury tax by doing this at the law schools in Texas. So we're hoping to have a similar effect here in Arkansas. Menstruating products like tampons and pads are taxed on average more than 9% across Arkansas, which can add up to about $11,000 over a person's lifetime. That's according to Katie Clark, the founder of the Arkansas Period Poverty Project based in Little Rock. Clark says that her organization spent years trying to work with lawmakers to pass legislation to exempt these sorts of products from being taxed, but kept running into roadblocks. There's a lot of education and awareness that also has to happen. And so I think that is something that we learned from legislative session is that maybe we needed to educate our legislators on the issue of period poverty, because I think a lot of us don't think about it. 
um, you know, we think about poverty, but we don't think about other aspects of that, except for, you know, like food insecurity. Clark says the group started in 2018 to promote menstrual equity in Arkansas through donations, education and legislation. And so we've started doing a lot more education around menstruation and menstrual hygiene um, and period pain and, you know, menstrual disorders and things like that through our social media, through interviews with medical experts um, and sharing those out on social media and doing webinars. During the 2021 legislative session, Clark began working with lawmakers to pass bills, removing some barriers to getting period products. The group worked on two bills, one with Republican Representative Aaron Pilkington of Knoxville and one with Democratic Representative Denise Innett of Little Rock. House Bill 1065, Representative Pilkington's bill to exempt these products from sales tax, died in the Revenue and Taxation House Committee. The other bill did much better. And then with Representative Denise Ennett, we introduced and passed a bill to allow schools to use pre-existing funds to purchase period products and provide them at no cost to students. Again, in the 2023 session, Clark worked to pass legislation to remove the taxation of products with no luck. So she decided to go a different route. Being able to go the ballot measure route, I think, is a really great opportunity because it allows us to get into the communities and talk with voters and, you know, be able to share this with them and be able to raise awareness at the community level about period poverty and why it's important. One community who was excited to help and participate is the Women's Law Student Association at the University of Arkansas. Erin Wadley is the president of the group, and she says she first saw the amendments on X. David Couch, whose name you may recognize from his work on the Freedom of Information Act constitutional amendment, is also involved in this amendment and posted about it online. And I was so inspired that that was something that he was passionate about and he was working on. And my next thought was, how do I support this? Wadley makes the distinction that while the University of Arkansas Law School has no stance on this proposed amendment, the Women's Law Student Association is in support of it and has already started working to raise awareness for it. Sierra Calicott is a first-year law student and says she founded a nonprofit that works to raise awareness to the issue of poverty in all forms, including period poverty. It was really kind of kismet because I reached out to Erin like kind of that same week um, about this idea. And I've done some work with um, Arkansas Period Poverty Project in the past. And so they connected me with period law. And so period law actually worked in Texas to help get the sales tax repealed in Texas like we saw recently. All ballot measures in Arkansas must be submitted to the attorney general. Their job is to look over the ballot title, the popular name, and the text of the proposed measure to find any deficiencies in the text or anything that may be considered ambiguous or misleading. In the initial ballot measure submitted, Attorney General Tim Griffin opined that the language was ambiguous. Clark, again from the Arkansas Period Poverty Project, says they needed to clarify what hygiene and grooming products would not be included in this tax exemption. So we needed to state, you know, things like shampoo would not be included or soap or razors, conditioner or lotion, things like that. Um, Apparently it wasn't specific enough. It wasn't clear enough as to what 
um, was included under feminine hygiene products and what was not included. And so um, they asked that we, you know, take a step and clarify that. And so a new version of the ballot measure was drafted with the specificity. And they also decided to add another specific product to their ballot measure, diapers. Clark says when this tax exemption was first being considered as a piece of legislation, their group and coalition decided to focus solely on period products. After all, Clark says, We're the Arkansas Period Poverty Project. We're going to, you know, stay in our lane and focus on period products. That's what we do. But with the ballot measure, they reconsidered brought the idea to their coalition and their social media followers. And about 72% of them said that they wanted diapers included. Um, And we looked at other states and Texas included that with their uh, most recent bill that went into effect on September 1st. Diapers were included in their um, tax exemption. Louisiana is the same in Florida. And so we figured if other states in the region who have similar, um, you know, sort of political uh, views are also exempting diapers that maybe that would strengthen it. It's worth noting that I am the parent of a newborn child, which means I am buying quite a few diapers. But Calicott points out purchasing diapers still tends to impact women more than men. Something that people talk a lot about, specifically constitutional scholars, when talking about um, this tax and how it is unconstitutional, is that the discriminatory intent is usually placed in the fact that they're called feminine hygiene products. And so, you know, we Arkansas, we have a big maternal health crisis going on. Diapers, while you're a great and superhero dad and you're buying diapers for your kids, there are a lot of mothers who are doing it on their own. So buying something like a diaper can be something that women um, disproportionately experience. And as Wadley points out, babies aren't the only ones who use diapers. What about your parents or what about your grandparents? That goes beyond maybe just of how we think of children or as women, for that matter, because not only women menstruate, right? There's a lot of people who do. And so opening the scope of that, I think, really just brings that community and broadens that to provide for really just, honestly, everyone in our state. When a bill is brought forward in the legislature, it's sponsored by lawmakers who are attached to a political party. Citizen-initiated constitutional amendments do not require a legislator to sponsor it, which means it can be nonpartisan. Clark says that element is important to her and her group. You know, we're a nonpartisan organization. We've worked with Republicans and Democrats. You know, one thing we've said is that people have periods on both sides of the aisle, you know, in both political areas. Um, It's something that we all experience. And I do think that this isn't really a political issue. Um, It's it's something that we've seen um, have bipartisan support in Texas and Louisiana and Florida. You know, we aren't part of the Democratic Party. We're not part of the Republican Party. We're really just a community group focusing on communities and families in Arkansas who are struggling. On October 10th, the attorney general approved the new ballot title. Next up, they have to collect more than 71,000 signatures of registered voters in Arkansas by July of next year. Clark says that will take a lot of work. But I think we have a lot of people who are really passionate about this issue in 
multiple areas of the state. Um, and so I think it'll just be a lot of strategizing and planning of how can we get at least one person in every county every weekend to be out somewhere, you know, at like farmers markets or things like that. So it's definitely going to take a lot of strategy and planning, but I think we can do it. I, again, I'm blindly hopeful. (laughs) Clark and her group have until July 4th, 2024 to collect and submit all those signatures to be included on the November 2024 ballot. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Another ballot measure has been submitted to the Attorney General. Last Wednesday, the ballot question committee, Arkansas Citizens for Transparency, hopes to protect the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act by requiring a vote of the people to enact any future changes to lessen government openness. The ballot measure looks to codify a definition of a public meeting, stiffen the penalty for violating the Freedom of Information Act, and substitute a new exemption for records related to security services provided to the governor and other state officials. Approval from the attorney general is still pending at this time. Ahead on today's Ozarks, the Ozarks. Next spring, the University of Arkansas Honors College will host a semester-long seminar called Ozark Culture. The story of who we are is, and and really that, that that really stereotypical kind of overalls and hillbilly kind of moonshine jug narrative has has been wielded against the place in a lot of ways and, and throughout time. And, and understanding how that, like Virginia would say, how that's we're way more complicated than that. But understanding that that story still holds a lot of power today. Myths, realities, and the spaces where myths and realities about the Ozarks might meet in about five minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. On a Mideast trip, President Biden meets Israel's leader, Egypt's president, and the King of Jordan, who doesn't want his country to receive more Palestinian refugees. No refugees in Jordan, no refugees in Egypt. So how can the world help civilians living in a war zone? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Morning Edition, tomorrow beginning at 5. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. The annual True Lit Festival at the Fayetteville Public Library continues tonight with a talk by Neil Schusterman, a winner of the National Book Award for Young People's Literature for his novel, Challenger Deep. He'll speak at 6 tonight. Tomorrow night, Daniel Jose Older, a New York Times bestselling author, will discuss the basics of storytelling. He says he believes storytelling is the most powerful thing in the world. And I think we can see that all over the place, you know, as stories become weaponized or stories become um, taken away from people, all these different levels of politicking that happen around stories are one way of understanding how powerful they are and how much power players recognize that. And I, I, because of that, I take storytelling very, very seriously. Older is the author of several novels, is the lead story architect for Star Wars, The High Republic, and has written for Marvel Comics. Now I see why you talked to him, Kyle. (laughs) He says he wants all readers to be able to find themselves in literature. It can be a very heartbreaking experience, and I say this from experience, to to just repeatedly not find yourself over and over. Like, where, where were we, you know? I remember looking for myself and not seeing it, especially in fantasy literature. Like, where were the Latinos, you know? And I just don't want anyone to ever feel that way. And I, I think like the more we can make our books, you know, inclusive and, and honest about the world, because it does come back to honesty. Older says he appreciates meeting his readers and hopes he can, on some level, inspire them. To feel like they can leave that event and see that 
there was someone on that stage, you know, who they understood on some level and and felt kinship with on some level. And that that means that they they can do that, too. Daniel Jose Older will be at the Fayetteville Public Library tomorrow night at 6. A full schedule for the True Lit Festival can be found at faylib.org. Walmart and General Mills have announced a new collaboration that aims to facilitate regenerative agriculture on more than half million acres. I'm going to try that one more time. Walmart and General Mills have announced a new collaboration that aims to facilitate regenerative agriculture on more than a half million acres in the United States by 2030. The practice of regenerative agriculture helps to address climate change in an industry heavily impacted by this growing crisis. The partnership will support farmers by increasing capacity through grants overseen by the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, supporting resilient production, and expanding programming and education around the practice of regenerative ag. University of Arkansas Office of Entrepreneurship and Innovation is teaming up with venture development firm Cartwheel Studio to launch the Bounds Accelerator. The accelerator will operate similarly to the office's Greenhouse Outdoor Recreation Program, but will instead aim to grow companies working in emerging retail technologies such as blockchain, AI, augmented reality, and virtual reality. The 16-week program will begin January 8th, 2024, and will bring together 10 different entrepreneurs, industry leaders, tech experts, and startup companies with weekly remote learning and mentoring sessions. The Accelerator will be bookended by an in-person orientation and demo day event in Bentonville. Funding for the program is provided by grants from the Arkansas Economic Development Commission, along with support from Coinbase Ventures, Han Ventures, and the AI Foundation. Applications to be part of the accelerator are due by November 3rd. The banks of War Eagle Creek will come alive with crafters this week for the 69th annual War Eagle Fair. The event will feature over 250 vendor booths selling only handcrafted goods. Organizers have been strict on the handmade products rule since the fair's first iteration in 1954. That's according to their website. You can visit the fair from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. this Thursday through Saturday, and the fair will close early at 4 p.m., on Sunday. And the Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team will start the season ranked 14th in the Associated Press poll. It's the third consecutive year Arkansas has been ranked inside the preseason top 20, the first time since the mid-1990s that the Razorbacks have been in three consecutive preseason polls. Razorbacks will host an exhibition game with UT Tyler Friday night at 6.30 in Bud Walton Arena. We could spend our entire hour today trying to decide upon a proper inclusive description of the Ozarks, and that still wouldn't be enough time to hammer out an understanding of the region's past, its geography, people, culture, let alone what the Ozarks are becoming. At least three University of Arkansas educators will have a semester next spring to discuss this very topic when they lead an honors college seminar called Ozark Culture. The three faculty members are Virginia Siegel, the state folklorist of Arkansas. 
Joshua Youngblood, Instruction and Outreach Unit Head for the Special Collections Division in the University of Arkansas Libraries, and Jared Phillips, who teaches Ozark History, Rural Development, and Food Systems in the U of A History Department. They came to the Carver Center for Public Radio recently to talk about the course. Jared Phillips says having three people from different disciplines lead the class about an evolving, complicated matter like Ozark culture is a benefit for the students. It allows students to see how we as scholars and, and sort of working members of the academy tangle with these ideas from these different perspectives. It's, it, lets them, it lets them sort of see us negotiate and navigate what does social change in a place like the Ozarks look like in real time, because it's, it's happening in real time around us, but we're also as academics and kind of social commentators trying to figure this out as well and argue, argue for particular perspectives and priorities. Um, and I think too often students, especially at the undergraduate level, and even the community doesn't get to see how we sort of shape what we're trying to argue for and, and, and how, we prior, how and why we prioritize certain conversations. Um, and I think, I think it'll be really interesting for the students. I know when I was a student, I enjoyed team, team talk classes because I got to see that, that nuts and bolts, sort of the mechanic of it, the mechanics of it. And, I thought it was cool. Virginia, you mentioned that the Ozarks are complicated, and I don't think anyone who lives or works in the Ozarks would deny that. I think what's also interesting is you're all approaching this in the present tense because I think there's a tendency for us to think of Ozarks culture, for whatever reason, as something in the past. And and if you think folklore or archives or history, oh, we're going to talk about what the Ozarks were, and I'm sure that will be part of it, but you're also talking about what the Ozarks are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. might be mm-hmm. turning into mm-hmm. yeah and you know a, a, a kind of a, a selfish uh desire with this class is that students will think about how memories are 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 collected how they're made uh, but then also how the evidence of studying the past and you know our, our current society and the situation we're in where does that evidence come from um, but thinking of uh ozarks in archives just in particular each time something's been saved, it's been a decision. Someone's decided to do this. And who's in, that, who's in that position to make that decision? What moment does that capture? Does it capture a context, a complexity? Does it intentionally not capture a complexity? Which when you look at Ozark's um, archives, what the preservation record looks like, what the published record looks like, there's a lot of decisions that have happened over eh, about two centuries. Yeah. I think two centuries is maybe generous if we're dealing with the word Ozark's. But, um, and um, what is the story that comes out of that? And so working with people that look at stories from different perspectives than me as an archivist, that's one thing, historian, folklorist, ethnography, all these other disciplines that come into it. It's different stories there. Um, but how does the evidence come to be who has ownership of not just the evidence, but the stories that you create out of it. Um, and so, and then that means how can that information be used? So from an archives pers- perspective, I love the fact that we're, we're, we're in a present place looking at it because of course the evidentiary record of today is being created as we, as we sit here in this room. Mm-hmm. And so who has ownership of that and who's gonna be engaged in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, that story of who we are is, and, and really that, that, that really stereotypical kind of overalls and hillbilly kind of moonshine jug narrative has, has been wielded against the place in a lot of ways and, and throughout time. And, and understanding how that, like Virginia was saying, how that's, we're way more complicated than that, but understanding that that story still holds a lot of power today. 
And so when we understand, you know, like the world that Josh is talking about, how do we think about what was collected, why it was collected, what the what the priorities have been from that, and then how the work that Virginia does, and you can speak more to this than I can, but how mm-hmm. it challenges that narrative, and then the work that I that I do, it's just like this is we can ask these, we can use our backstory to not just understand those classic questions of history, like where we come from, all that, but sort of about how do we how do we take an ownership in a place in the in the active role of creating a new culture in the Ozarks as opposed to having that that culture be kind of foisted upon us by the society at large or by certain active interests in the region whatever the case may be how do we as citizens of the Ozarks as broadly defined as that can be like take an active role in the creation and and putting forward of this new vision of a place and I'd add to that um, that culture is living and breathing mm-hmm. I think we have this sense through the collecting of, for instance, Vance Randolph, I think we've talked around him a bit without naming him, um, of a sort of static, frozen-in-time picture of the Ozarks, but really the collecting that a lot of um, people think of when they think of the Ozarks was, A, a moment in time, but B, also heavily influenced by, as Joshua said, the editorial choices of the people who were doing the collecting. So um, it's really, uh, at best, a snapshot in time, as I said. So um, as a folklorist, one of the things I'm interested in is reminding people that traditions are absolutely very conservative in that they endure over time, but they are equally quite dynamic in that we are constantly um, creating new traditions every day, changing them, updating them. Um, Ozark's culture is so very alive and there's a whole uh, a world of people who are creating and, and doing such neat things um, that I think looks very different than what someone who is maybe just taking a stab at what they think the Ozarks looks like from the outside. And, and, and even within the, the, the record that does exist, things that have been collected over the time about, you know, previous actions or previous actors and creators and stuff have happened in the past, um, a lot of that was collected or the stories that are told out of it was for, you know, commercial reasons or booster reasons. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we think about, you know, Virginia mentioned Vance Randolph and Vance Randolph being, you know, the guy who wrote the books, including one called Ozark Primitive Society, you right. know, which we right. hopefully will tear apart in our class a little bit. I will help happily uh, do that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> but then we have other people, like one of the archives we have at the University of Arkansas is uh, Otto Ernest Rayburn, mm-hmm. who um, was not his, an historian. He certainly was not a folklorist, although he might have styled himself as such sometimes. He was a bookseller. He was also a teacher. Mm-hmm. He was a journalist. He was uh, he wrote he wrote cultural studies of the Ozarks. He did a bunch of stuff, mainly to promote the idea Mm-hmm. of the Ozarks and the idea of an Ozarks as a place that people might be interested in and might move to as well as just to this notion. He was an outsider that came here and thought, ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spread the notion of the Ozarks. And that notion, what was it at the time? Who knows? And I don't think he could have given you a clear definition, even though he has 200 volumes in an encyclopedia he put together, and he put together a best-selling book. Yeah, you know, at that same time that Rayburn was collecting and adding, you know, putting stuff together, I can't remember the author's name, but he was a naturalist that wrote a, like, he kind of journeyed across America through the four seasons. And um, and he, his whole thing for the Ozarks, this is the heyday of, you know, Brooks Blevins are sort of our, the guiding light of Ozark studies, if you will. <laughs> you know, he talks about how there's this, like, there are kind of a, a few heyday periods for people being excited about the Ozarks. And this author is writing right in the middle of that, 
And he, I mean, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Everybody, he's a household name at the time. And his home, his only trip to the Ozarks is to like skirt the western edge of it and then curl around and go to St. Louis. And he just like has a couple of throwaway lines about us about like hillbilly witch doctors and like, and that's it, you know? And so like, I don't know what Rayburn is like, where he's sitting, you know, in this world, but uh, it's clear that America sees us at, you know, in the 50s, kind of like we're seeing in a lot of ways today, but we never wear either of those things, you know? And so how do we, how do we sort of help students to think through that question of, well, who, who are we, you know? Like another place that we start at when we kind of ask a question about a class like this really hopefully any humanities or social sciences class is um, is a kind of a so what question, right? Like we can go and we can sit and, and talk about all these these skills and ideas of critical thinking and, and things like that. But I, I'm interested in students thinking about how you apply history, how you apply cultural learning um, and how you use that to not just sort of interrogate the material in your texts and your syllabus, but how do you take that and go and interrogate what you read in the newspaper, right? How do you take that into and, and, and say, okay, well, in the Ozarks we have, you know, we got rapid population explosion. We're seeing interesting, you know, and problematic things occurring as far as rural agricultural economies are concerned. Is it okay that an organization like the Nature Conservancy owns something like eight square miles around the Kings River, right? Like what happens to private access in the Ozarks? What happens to agriculture in the Ozarks? If organizations like this are sort of quietly in the name of doing good, buying up huge amounts of land and letting part of our cultural history fade away, crumble around us, right? So how do I, how do I push students to ask questions about things like that, that, are, that they've never even thought to ask a question about and see, and, and when we do that, we marshal all these tools, we won't see every student do this, but we start to see students get fired up. And those are the kids that become interested in taking part in our civic process. They become interested in taking part in our cultural process, right? And those are the kids that go on and they will, they may not become president, but they're going to become leaders in community activism. They're going to become leaders on campus. And they're going to carry these, carry these very Ozark independent values forward to that next generation, you know? And that's, that's sort of how we have been talking about crafting our class. Like, how do we how do we pull together these skills? How do we pull together, you know, critical thinking and engagement with the materials and getting out and meeting the community? You know, we're not, hillbillies are not, we're not a scary lot of people, you know, necessarily. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, and then once you, once you do this, like, how do you, like, what do you do with that, right? Do you just like take it home and put it in a box, you know, or, or do you, you say, I, there, like, there's massive poverty here and like poverty is a social choice. So how do we deal with that? Like there's massive food insecurity here. That's also a social choice. How do we deal with that? You know, what do we do? How do we, how do we engage with that? And I've seen that, we've all seen that in the classroom for years, like, and this is another avenue by which we can do that, but it's around our place, right? They're honorary Ozarkers. And so this is around our place and how do we care about this place, you know, and, and move forward. Jared Phillips, Joshua Youngblood, and Virginia Siegel will lead the University of Arkansas Honors College Seminar Ozark Culture next spring. They'll also host a public preview of the seminar tomorrow evening at 5.15 in Gearhart Hall Auditorium on the U of A campus. They say they hope tomorrow's public conversation and the honor seminar can lead to more formal Ozark study here. And we'll hear more about that on Friday's edition of Ozarks at Large. And still to come on this Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large, singer and songwriter Bonnie Montgomery. She came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio recently to talk about her upcoming album release, River. That's still to come on today's show. 
Walton Arts Center presents The Capital Fools, October 26th as part of its LOL at WAC comedy series. It features former members of the Capital Steps who were all once Senate staffers. It's an insider's perspective on our current political culture. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. The conversations about increasing opportunities for affordable housing continue in Northwest Arkansas. This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas focuses on not just talking about, but creating affordable housing. Host Randy Wilburn talks with Mark Conine, the president of the Arkansas Development Finance Authority. Among the topics of discussion, proposed alterations in city zoning to require more affordable housing, including one concept called inclusionary zoning. To require a percentage of the new developments to include affordable housing needs. And so you say, you come in and you say, hey, we're going to build a, an apartment complex, you know, over here on Fayetteville Street, right? Right. Well, a portion of those have to have affordable units in them, right? Yeah. Or you might have certain areas of town, right, that have a, a particular property and it can be zoned for affordable housing. So, Essentially, it is changing some of your zoning laws to make sure that there are some affordable units in those. And I'll give you an example. It's not much different than, say, here in Little Rock, where there's some zoning ordinances that say for every, you know, so many new homes, single family homes that you build in a certain area, Mm -hmm. there have to be some multifamily units. Okay, and so really, it's no different than that. Right. It's just a kind of a specialty, but it's really no different than that. It's saying you're, you're not, there's nothing burdensome about that. It's just saying, hey, inside of our zoning ordinances, we're going to say that the affordable housing units are going to be a part of that, that they're going to be important to us. Because a lot of affordable properties, you might be dealing with things like, you know, access to grocery stores, access to health care, access to city parks and libraries, all the things that we love as residents of our communities. A lot of times they have to push those out a little bit, right, and get them because they can't get them zoned or there's there's, there's different issues with city ordinances or whatever. And so if you bring some of that in, it helps the people that live in affordable housing units because they're not spending as much commuting to work and getting to the grocery store or, you know, those types of things. And you can get into all kinds of things of of health and well-being and all those things that go along with that. So on the zoning side. I think it's just going to have to be an emphasis that to promote mixed use development and higher density in certain areas. Yeah. And, you know, and that brings up a good point, which I'm sure some people are listening to, because there's always going to be some segment of the population that are going to fall into a little bit of nimbyism, if you will, which is stands for not in my backyard. Right. And I can see that kind of we we have where I live on the east side of Fayetteville just north of kind of township, uh, up by Gully Park, you know, there's always been talks of adding in some more higher density developments. And we actually have one right by Gully Park and it's called Gully Acres or something like that. And it's been quite a successful spot. It's just the places are just closer together. They've gotten actually quite expensive, but I want to say compared to what some of the other units are selling for in the area, they are somewhat affordable, but you know, If you start having this conversation about affordable housing, you run into you will run into people that just are not quite educated about what affordable housing really is and how it can really benefit the whole of the community. 
how are you guys working to overcome that aspect of it? Because that is that in in and of itself is a major issue, right? You've got the at the city level, you run into some challenges, but then you also have at the neighborhood level where you have to kind of help people bridge that gap of understanding. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. We do deal with that a little bit. We don't get involved in it a lot, but occasionally it comes up that the developers deal with it. You know, a lot of times there's a kind of a misunderstanding about what affordable housing is. So it's like you've got market rate, then you've got affordable housing, and then you've got what some would call public housing. Right. right? Affordable is kind of in the, in the middle. And there are definitely neighborhoods and neighborhoods associations that, you know, they, they get concerned about when some of these, you know, are going in. And if you drive by an affordable housing place, it looks just like a market rate place. Yep. We have minimum design standards that, developers have to follow. And in some cases, they're higher than on a market rate property, right? Yeah. And so a lot of people don't even know. And so what we've tried to, from a state perspective, what we try to continue to do is make sure that not just that we get housing units on the ground, but that we get, I I just like to use the word nice, somewhere that anybody would want to raise their family. They would want to have, you know, a holiday dinner at their home that they're proud of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we can get into the details, but just what they consider is a nice place to live. It's a safe place to live. It's good quality standard construction. And so I think if we make sure that's important, if that goes into someone's you know single family neighborhood, it looks nice. Right. It's got a nice gate around it. It's pleasing to the eye. You know, it's quality construction and then also promote, you know, safety and promote some of the things that go with those projects, which might be a clubhouse or a swimming pool or a playground, or there's a lot of talk now about putting medical clinics on some of the properties, right? Yeah, yeah, and so a that. neighborhood medical clinic, some of the things that are being talked about, they're being done, you know, in a couple of places, I think they will, you know, quote, fit into what you're saying into a traditional single family neighborhood. Yeah. And so I think that that, again, I think the only way this works is from a funding perspective and then from, say, a city or local perspective is people coming together and saying, hey, how do we make this work? Mark Conine is the president of the Arkansas Development Finance Authority. The complete conversation with Randy Wilburn is this week's episode of the podcast, I Am Northwest Arkansas. You can find that episode at KUAF.com, at IamNorthwestArkansas.com, or wherever you find quality podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. The Smithsonian exhibition Voices and Votes, Democracy in America remains on the John Brown University campus in Siloam Springs through Friday. On the eve of the exhibit's opening last month, JBU and KUAF teamed up to host a discussion about voting. Yesterday, we heard responses to my question that night, what do we not know or understand about voting? And we'll continue today with the responses from Emil Tenorio, an integrated marketing communications major at JBU, who's also served as the copy editor for the JBU Lantern, and Chris Seawood, corporate and institutional giving manager at Theater Squared, and also the treasurer of the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council. We hear from Emil first. One thing, I mean, why do I vote? I really like to get the sticker at the, at, right afterward. I, I love it. I put it in my journal and everything. It is really exciting, but... Uh, on top of that unusual sort of uh, patriotism, uh, part of um, what we do, what, what we really don't know about voting, I would say, on the younger side too, is just we have so. The irony is that we have so much information out there that we don't really know 
where to start our research. Um, I was talking to a student a few days ago about, about me just being on this panel, and one of the things that he was telling me was how uh, most people who are, who are here in college or in, maybe in high school who are about to vote, they just get their sources on Instagram, or they might just get their sources through Facebook, or just a social media platform, and it just becomes an echo chamber of just what it is that you really want to hear, not that you're needing to hear. And so what is it that we don't know about voting? Whatever it is that the others, that whatever your side is, the other side is just increasing in terms of the amount of separation between the sides. And I think, again, just we have all this information, and yet we are still very divided. Yeah, I, I've got to agree with Yamil on that piece. It's, I mean, we, we live in such a, a polarized society right now, and there's such a, a channel of disinformation that is out there. Um, you don't, I don't know, I'm not sure. Um, how we end up. I mean, I always end up hopeful, um, but it's just, there are just so many folks that peddle in, I won't just lie. I'm just gonna say that, just lie. Um, um, and it's just, it's just hard to wade through um, all of that. Um, especially with a 24-hour news cycle, it's 24-7, 24-7, and you know, even with most of our news now, there's, there's, there's a particular news channel that is right, there's a news channel that is left, and you don't know if you're getting the truth from either, you're probably not um, um, one way or the other. I mean, I've got, thoughts one way or the other, but again, it's not time for that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just, we're, we're just, it's a polarizing time um, that I think is um, really leading to a lot of disengagement um, and disenfranchisement, number one. Um, and it's causing people to disengage from the process. Um, I've been saying, just check out, well, I, nobody really represents me. Um, so, um, and then those that do engage are engaging with um, half-truths and just flat-out lies. So, um, yeah. Chris Seawood is treasurer of the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council. Emil Tenario is an integrated marketing communications major at JBU. They were two of the panelists that took part in our conversation about voting and democracy last month on the John Brown University campus. The Smithsonian exhibit, Voice and Votes, Democracy in America, remains open to the public on the JBU campus through Friday. This is Ozarks at Large. I could tell you Bonnie Montgomery is a singer-songwriter, a wildly talented one, but that's far from the whole story. Her upcoming album, River, captures a mood of lush country and Americana. She knows her way around Southern gospel and Western swing. And she's also a classically trained opera singer and co-creator of the short-length opera, Billy Blythe. 
a modern folk opera about Bill Clinton's youth in Hot Springs. That opera has been staged in New York City, Ithaca, and Little Rock. She came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio earlier this month, and when she was here, I asked her about her new album and about her varied repertoire. I really enjoy the diversity of what I get to do, and I think it's becoming more um, available to me as I build my catalog and, yeah, make the connections. And that diversity comes also because you are very, I guess you'd say, fluent in opera. In, in 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 what I grew up with as country music and with pop music. I mean, so that opens up those doors. Right, yeah. And for the longest time, I thought I needed to stay in one genre. But I've learned as I've gone on that, no way. i got to do everything that's available to me. But it can be challenging because people, other people, might think you should stay in one lane. Yes, For sure. I think the public likes things that are nice wrapped up in a box, easily explained, and that's definitely not me. (laughs) So how did you manage to make sure you could take advantage of everything that you wanted to? Well, I just started doing what my heart was leading me to do with the composing, classical composing, and I always loved opera, but my beginnings were in country, so... It just kind of came out naturally over time. You grew up in rural Arkansas. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I don't know if they consider Cersei rural. Let's put it this way. You grew up in small town Arkansas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As did I, and I could hear country music all the time. Right. I understand why sometimes or often that's what I'm drawn to. I've been hearing it for decades. Where were you? Where did classical and opera come in for you? Well, I was really lucky because my family encouraged me to take lessons really young. I think they started me at three years old on the piano. Uh, My family owned a music store. My grandparents started a music retail business. And so I think they pushed me at first, and I just gravitated towards it, loved it, spent hours at the piano as a child, and singing. They also had me singing in front of the church at like age three and in front of the Kiwanis Club and Rotary and all that. So, um, you know, then as I went through my classical training and I learned more on the piano, I think that's that was like the gateway drug to <laughs> what else is out there classically. And it just always moved me when I heard anything orchestral Especially the first time I heard opera, I was just knocked out. Do you remember which opera it was or which voice? Yes. Um, It's so random, but I was about 15, 16, and ASUBB was close to Cersei. And I was like a drama geek and choir nerd, and I would go to anything I could get my hands on. Uh, And there wasn't a whole lot, you know. But some troupe was coming through uh, to do scenes from La Boheme at ASUBB. (laughs) So the first opera I saw live was at ASU, and it was just scenes. But, oh, my God, I just, wow, just tears and, like, all this emotion. And then I went home and was like, what is this, this opera thing? I need more. When I was growing up, I often remember being in my parents' car in the summer and the local station would play a lot of country. And it Mm -hmm. would be, and I remember the voices of like Bobby Gentry Mm -hmm. and um, Glenn Campbell and some of that. When I listened to River, the song, 
it takes me back to that. It's like, it's a, it, it's like a combination between that lush, great country sound, and it might sound weird to you, but Honky Chateau by El, uh, Elton John, his 1972 record. I, it just took me to those sorts of influences. And I wonder if those are influences for you. Amazing. Yes, Elton John was a huge influence on this record. I can hear it, yeah. I didn't know if that would translate at all. I was just really into, you know, the full sound of records back then. And I thought Elton John was doing it. Linda Ronstadt, we listened to a lot of that. We listened to a lot of Bob Seger at the time of recording. Uh, but definitely the Bobby Gentry is just kind of baked in, you know. So the song River, mm-hmm. the first time I listened to it, I thought it was completely metaphorical. Okay. Right? Cool. Mom said, don't do this, but I want to climb this tree. I want to go higher. But then I read that it's not just metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps for the songwriter, not at all. It's it, it it's based on family history? Yes. Yes. It's a story that my family would tell over and over, I think, uh, because it's sort of encapsulated my father's spirit and I think they thought it was really cute and you know it was just such a portrait of him that when he was young and they they had a dairy farm close to England Arkansas Mm -hmm. Spring Hill area and um, the the Arkansas River was right there so you know I think he was about six years old and, you know, my grandmother always told him don't climb that huge tree in the yard, but he wanted to see the Arkansas river so bad that he climbed it. And then he fell out of the tree and broke his wrist. And it was always this really amazing um, injury that made him look pretty bad to the bone. But, um, he said that that injury was probably why he wasn't drafted for Vietnam. I think that was the reason why he wasn't. And so he was kind of a philosopher, and he would say, if I if I hadn't fallen out of that tree, I might not be here. You might not be here, because that's what kept him from going to the war. So it's always been a, a cool story in my mind. This record, and the full record will be released in early November, was also recorded kind of not in the city. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. On a sod farm? Is that what I read? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in a studio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I've been playing with Kevin Scarla for years, and he's an amazing multi-instrumentalist, and he would always play steel on the tours in, in the band. And he, he played on other records that we put out. But he built this studio in his family's barn, um, and they own this big sod farm in Texas. And... Yeah, he just built it in a wing of the barn and, you know, made sure it was 
perfect. Everything in there is just meticulous. You know how steel players are uh-huh. very detail uh-huh. oriented. So, do you think that makes a difference when you're going in to record songs like River or something about being a modern cowgirl? Do you think it makes a difference, or could you get in the right vibe if you were in the middle of Times Square in Manhattan in a studio? I think I could definitely get in the right vibe anywhere we record. We would record. I mean, it's nice when a studio is vibey, as they say, you know, and has some kind of character to it. But um, it definitely was awesome to like take breaks and walk through the barn. His he, there would always be a radio on, just playing like a local Houston station of old, like George Strait kind mm-hmm. of country, and that would be going in the barn and just the smell of you know everything they were they would be harvesting and just yeah it definitely was like this country reset every time i stood outside you mentioned how comfortable you feel with your bandmates and, and allowing them to explore in the studio who are they well the main guy is kevin skirla he is the one who owns the studio he did the engineering uh but he played every instrument because this was during the pandemic so he would lay down drums bass all the guitars, all the keys. Well, I did some guitars and keys. And then he would be engineering, too, and producing. So that's Kevin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A valuable friend to have. Very much. And then the maestro himself, Jeffrey Robson, who's now the music director of the Arkansas Symphony. Uh, He's been playing violin with me for years on the road and everything else and on the records. But uh, with this, he came down and arranged the strings himself and played violin, viola, double bass, I think, yeah, and some piano. And then we had a guy named Jimmy Daddy Davis. He's an amazing Memphis legend, and he sang some backups. And then we had Whitney Rose sing some backups remotely. She wasn't able to come in, but that's everybody. Well, congratulations. I've only heard the first two singles from the album, Mm -hmm. but I love them both. And River is just... A masterpiece. It really is. Thank you. So I can't wait to hear the rest and um, stay in touch, okay? Okay. Thank you so much. Bonnie Montgomery's new album, River, will be released early next month. You can hear the first two singles, River and Modern Day Cowgirl's Dream, online right now. We talked in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio earlier this month. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the second annual Makers Fair is coming to the Fayetteville Public Library. It's going to be an amazing day. I'm I'm super excited and so, so humbled by um, all the creators that are willing to share their work with us as a community. You can hear that story and much more tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors to today's show included Jack Travis and Randy Wilburn. KUAF's underwriting director is Ryan Versey. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents the final season of Listening Forest. Guests are invited to explore an interactive world of light, sound, and wonder in this immersive nighttime experience. Open through December 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Walton Arts Center presents The Capital Fools, October 26th as part of its LOL at WAC comedy series. It features former members of The Capital Steps, who were all once Senate staffers. It's an insider's perspective on our current political culture. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org.